everyone, welcome back to Processions. For episode 12, I'm going to be reading from a work of modernist literature, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Of course, a sort of classic feminist work in the, in the canon of English literature, A Room of One's Own is doing a lot of things, including telling a history of feminist fiction in the United Kingdom, as well as making claims about money and public support and and the relationship between freedom and money in a more liberal sense. And I want to investigate this text with one little snapshot that tries to make sense of this liberal monetary vision, as well as the essayistic form in which Wolf is really pushing and asking questions and about the limits of what is possible in a society that is constructed with a patriarchal foundation. And so I'll be reading from pages 9 and 10, which begin with her describing the sort of outside or exterior architecture and relations of Oxbridge, which which, in case you are wondering, is a combination of Oxford and Cambridge. So, you get the idea. She is describing the elite British institutions of higher education. The outside of the chapel remained. As you know, its high doms and pinnacles can be seen like a sailing ship always voyaging, never arriving, lit up at night and visible for miles far away across the hills. Once, presumably, this quadrangle with its smooth lawns, its massive buildings, and the chapel itself was marsh too, where the grasses waved and the swine rootled. Teams of horses and oxen, I thought, must have hauled the stone in wagons from far countries, and then, with infinite labor, the gray blocks in whose shade I was now standing were poised in order, one on top of another, and then the painters brought their glass for the windows, and the masons were busy for centuries up on that roof with putty and cement, spade and trowel. Every Saturday somebody must have poured gold and silver out of a leather person into their ancient fists. For they had their beer and skittles, presumably of an evening. An unending stream of gold and silver, I thought, must have flowed into this court perpetually to keep the stones coming and the masons working, to level, to ditch, to dig, and to drain. But it was then the age of faith, and money was poured liberally to set these stones on a deep foundation. And when the stones were raised, still more money was poured in from the coffers of kings and queens and great nobles to ensure that the hymns should be sung here and scholars taught. Lands were granted, tithes were paid, and when the age of faith was over, the age of reason had come. Still the same flow of gold and silver went on. Fellowships were founded, lectureships endowed. Only the gold and silver flowed now, not from the coffers of the king, but from the chests of merchants and manufacturers, from the purses of men who had made, say, a fortune from industry, and returned in their wills a bounteous share of it to endow more chairs, more lectureships, more fellowships in the university where they had learned their craft. 
Yet the libraries and laboratories, the observatories, the splendid equipment of costly and delicate instruments which now stands on glass shelves, where centuries ago the grasses waved and the swine rootled. Certainly, as I now strolled round the court, the foundation of gold and silver seemed deep enough, the pavement laid solidly over the wild grasses. Men with trays on their heads went busily from staircase to staircase. Gaudy blossoms flowered in window boxes. The strains of the gramophone blared out from the rooms within. It was impossible not to reflect. The reflection, whatever it may have been, was cut short. The clock struck. It was time to find one's own way to luncheon. So, of course, amidst the flowery and meandering language of the essay, the, the modernist literary mode, Wolf is articulating an economic story, a monetary narrative, if you will, of the founding of Oxbridge, the founding of British elite higher education, the patriarchal foundation for her experience as an author, as a woman in her time. And what I find so fascinating and, and haunting about this section of the text is both her biting critique of the economic and monetary construction of institutional patriarchy that is harbored in the silhouettes and, and rhythms of this text, and also her deep liberal understanding of what that construction is necessarily constructed of. The pouring of gold, the foundation, this concretized, literally concretized, reified, right? In, the, in a deep sense of the word, mode of production, right? And she's articulating this transition in an almost Marxian sense from the feudal mode to the liberal mode, right? From the coffers of kings and queens to the purses of merchants and men. And what I find so interesting about it is the way it's phenomenologically rendering her position amidst the deep foundation of liberal patriarchy as a almost mode of walking, right? Of walking and, and looking at the world money made. It's, it's profoundly depressing, right? And it's also true, right? Money made this world, but money didn't make it by dint purely of its form, a form which literally for wolf concrete, right? Of pouring, of liquid, right? Of, of molten context and a molten texture. But it's about the decisions of these people, right? These, these men who've endowed fellowships and lectureships and built libraries and observatories and, and set an educational path that did not include Virginia Woolf. And there are a lot of ways in which, you know, the history of patriarchy has been unraveled and historicized. And there, there's so much scholarship here, so I don't pretend to reinvent the wheel. But I think 
there's a real lesson to be learned from the limits of this metaphor of pouring, of, of foundation, of her walking and money concretized under her feet, precisely because we don't have to literally tear down the concrete to, to remake, to re-endow, to reconstitute, to monetarily provision a just and inclusive and equitable university, an equitable educational landscape, right? We're definitely fighting against the echoes of all of these ongoing exclusionary processes and ideologies, but they're not as solid as the concrete under our feet. And so I, you know, I come back to some conversations I've had with one of my colleagues here at UCSB, uh, a friend of mine who works on English modernist literature and thinking about the way Wolf, Wolf's work as a, as a sort of wide body is really obsessed with the way people are relate to a world and the way words and these abstract meanderings of the modernist literary mode are suturing and connecting minds and bodies together in a world of almost confusion, but also uh, a biting directionality, right? A a thrown directionality that seeks at once to be open to the blossoms and the gaudy flower fixtures, as well as critique the order underneath with which all of these connections are founded and are continually mediated. And so I think that is also something we can learn from Virginia Woolf. In spite of and with her liberal monetary mode. You could even call it a monetary modernism. Okay, that's all I got for you today. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one.